This is another episode of Flavor in Your Ear Podcast. A podcast about damn near any and every topic with no filter and zero regard for the easily offended. Everything you say upsets somebody. Please welcome the man behind the madness. The most important person with all due respect. Let's go! Your host and audio flavor maestro. My man. Marquise Edwards. What is going on, everyone? We are back with another episode of Flavoring Your Ear Podcast. And as I continue to support all the things I love to support about life, growth, women empowerment, experiences, you know, all these different things, I handpick my guests to come and share their stories and talk about these difficult topics and talk about the things that sometimes people are afraid to talk about, you know, in person uh, to help our listeners out there uh, to gain experience, you know, uh, entertain whatever it may be that our guests bring and i was just talking to her right now she's been very very busy at podcasting community um charlene madden is here with us today and as i said this is maybe maybe rub some of my male listeners off a little bit wrong but i'm all for women empowerment and also uh i interview a lot of women and they are the biggest supporters. I'm so sorry to say that they are the biggest supporters. And it really opened my eyes to how hard, uh, especially, you know, I'm overseas, of course, but especially how hard women in the U S or, you know, in other countries just work so hard. And I didn't know that until I started podcasting, getting so many guests and hearing so many stories. And it really led me to want to gravitate to more guests to hear their stories and, and, and things like that. So I hope you all enjoy this episode, which, you all enjoy every episode that I have. So, you know, I don't bring guests, you know, without something that I feel like I saw this one thing that makes her so special. So, uh, let everybody say hey to, uh, to you. Say hey to everybody, Charlene, and uh, let us know just a little bit about you outside of your story, just a little bit about you as a person. Well, hey, hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. Um, I, as you said, my name is Charlene Madden. I am currently living in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. I am right at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, so I'm in my own little piece of heaven. Um, I am a proud mother of three amazing kids, five goats, three dogs, and a cat. <laughs> so I am, <laughs> I am busy. Um, I'm a busy fur mom as well. And um, I'm also a women's empowerment coach, a speaker, and an author. And um, I've just found my passion in uh, podcasting, being able to share my story and uh, and hopefully help uh, other people out like story helped me. So Awesome synopsis there. Um, we all, you know, go through life and a lot of people are not courageous enough to express the things they went through. Like a lot of us, I'm not being honest with you, a lot of people like, they go through things and they feel like, oh, if I say this part of my life that someone's going to look at me this way or, you know, they don't want society to, you know, flood them with judgment or commentary about what they went through in their life. So I saw you, I read your bio and I said, man, she's really being transparent here. She's really telling, you know, and I'll let you explain it as well, just telling about herself and how she overcame this. And what I'm trying to do with this podcast, Charlene, is I'm trying to normalize these conversations right um and what i mean by normalizing is the more conversations we have 
the more people know that it's okay to go through these things as long as you can be able to pull from it and bring something substantial, you know, out of it, right? Like, that's all it's about. We all go through shit in life. Excuse my language. We all go through Mm -hmm. things in life. And you got young kids out there, even adults still struggling to find how to get through things. But I said, man, if you know what, if I can reach out to somebody who, who went through this and who has enough courage to be able to talk about it, someone, you, if you help one person to listen, that's a victory for me. Right. So that's, that's my, I'm just, I'm just kind of communicating. Cause you, of course you, you see me on this podcast and you don't like know me personally. Right. You don't know why, why I do this. You know, if I'm checking the box, which I'm not, but, um, I say that live on the air just so you can know why I do these things and why I chose you and why I reached out to you to have these conversations, right? So be yourself. Um, I feel like you're going to empower anybody to speak about because, you know, strong women are something that we need to promote more of because as a man, I will tell you that I've had my fair share of dealing with things and it's not easy to deal with things in life and be able to express it to someone and to an audience or you know podcast or anything like that that's not that's not easy not easy at all so <sighs> tell us a little bit about your how you started this journey and what are some of the things that you've been through in your life that's brought you to this point today to where your mindset is mm-hmm. um my story starts when i was very young um i was born into a pretty dysfunctional family I was the youngest of four kids. I had two half brothers that were twins, and then I had an older sister who was four years older than myself. And my parents, as well as they were trying to do in their life, um, my dad was a severe alcoholic, and it really affected uh, his ability to not only parent, but be a good husband. And um, he got violent when he drank. and. Most of the time, his violence was directed at my half-brothers, of course, because they were not biologically his, so they were very easy targets. And when I was three and a half, my mom made a decision to leave the marriage in a way of saving her sons because the way things were going, it was going to be bad. And um, unfortunately, my dad wouldn't let her take my sister and I. She was free to go with the boys, but not us. So my mom made a really difficult decision and took my brothers and probably saved their lives. So my sister and I stayed with my dad, but of course, because he was such a severe alcoholic, he wasn't capable of raising two little girls. So he contacted my grandparents and um, these were my mom's parents. And my grandmother, of course, did not skip a beat. She said, absolutely, we will take the kids. And, uh, She was a saint to me. My grandmother was an absolutely amazing woman. She was very strong, independent. Uh, She was very um, focused on getting a good education. She had very minimal education, grade three, grade four, maybe grade five. So to her, education opened doors for women. So she wanted us to get a good education so we could get a good job, so we could be independent and not depend on men. And I probably learned that lesson just a little bit too well. But um, so as loving as my grandmother was, unfortunately, my grandfather was a pedophile. So at the age of three and a half, just moving in with my grandparents, uh, both my sister and I started experiencing sexual abuse at his hands. And this was almost a weekly occurrence. Um, my grandmother was a woman of service. She did everything for everybody else, very rarely took time for herself. But every Monday night, she would go to bingo. 
and seven o'clock she would you know or five to seven she would put us to bed drive out the driveway and my sister and I would lay in bed knowing that very quickly we would hear my grandfather's foots on the stair footsteps on the stairs as he came up um, because that was his opportunity because he was alone with us so as I said this went on for uh, about nine years and when I was 12 and a half my sister was 16 she went to school one day and basically had a nervous breakdown um, because she was afraid of being coming impregnated by my grandfather and she desperately wanted to run away she wanted to leave the house um, but she knew if she left that full abuse would be turned on me and she desperately wanted to do all she could to protect me and um, and I'm very grateful for that sacrifice that she made and um, as I said when she was 16 everything kind of came out so my grandfather was arrested my grandparents divorced and our whole life was kind of thrown upside down which it had already been upside down as a kid but um and i remember this is back in the 80s the early 80s there wasn't a lot of follow-up care there was no therapy no counseling nothing like that i mean i remember sitting in a social worker's office and having her get up and, and come around and kind of pat me on the back and said don't worry charlene everything's going to be okay and at 12 and a half with everything that had already happened in my life, I had no idea what okay was. I had no right. idea what that was supposed to look like. Right. And so I, you know, am just going through coming into early adolescence and going into high school and, you know, growing up in a small town where everybody knew what had happened. I faced this stigma. Um, kids were, you know, asking questions about it because their parents were talking about it at home and, uh, some people didn't believe what happened. They thought this was just stories that my sister and I made up because we were troubled kids. And um, so you face that that anger of having to go through all that abuse and not being believed and, and then facing the stigma of knowing people knowing what had happened. So quickly in high school, um, you know, I'm trying to find my way without any of the the skills or the tools that I needed, I started suffering with mental illness and depression. Um, I felt abandoned by my parents, emotionally abandoned my, by my grandfather, and in a way abandoned by my grandmother, who I thought was the person that was always going to be there to protect me. And I started to get suicidal and I started cutting myself and trying to find ways as outlets. You know, I started drinking, I started smoking marijuana, all these things I could do to numb the emotional pain that I was feeling. And I found an outlet in writing. It was a way of, you know, pouring my emotions out onto paper. And I always said I was either pouring ink onto paper or I was pouring blood at that stage and, you know, trying to, to find a, a healthy way of dealing with these emotions. And of course, when you're writing dark, depressing, suicidal stuff, of course, your teachers notice and I was sent to my guidance counselor's office and uh, had a school psychologist come in and do an afternoon noon long assessment, four hours of questionnaires and talking, and which really was the last thing I wanted to do. But um, and after four hours, this psychologist is sitting across the desk and she says, Charlene, I want you to know we're diagnosing you as manic depressive bipolar. So I'm 15 and a half. I have no idea what that means. And um, other than the fact that I feel crazy already, and this just seems like it is validating that I am crazy. 
And she looked across the desk and she said, but I want you to know you're going to be okay. And again, now I'm starting to get angry because now I've got another adult telling me that I'm going to be okay. And I'm like, how are you making promises that I don't know if you can keep those? I don't know if I'm going to be okay. And, you know, she said, if, you know, if you need to talk, schedule an appointment, we're here to, to talk anytime you need it. Well, talking was really the last thing I wanted to do. I just wanted to bury everything that had happened. So I kind of emotionally tried to do that. I threw myself into school because I thought if I could just graduate high school, I could move away, go somewhere where no one knows who I am, and I could just be another face in the crowd because I just wanted to be like everybody else. I didn't want to be different. And so that's what I did. I finished high school and I moved away with my high school sweetheart. And um, we thought very quickly on we were going to start a family, have that, you know, white picket fence ideal life that really neither of us had had, you know, great childhoods growing up. Um, and I thought this was my chance to break the generational cycle of trauma. I was going to do better by my kids. But the fact was, I couldn't do better by myself. And um, I started experiencing the darkness and the depression and the suicidal thoughts. And, you know, every child I had, and not that I, I had three children, I should clarify <laughs> that, I have 12. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but I felt like, you know, when I had a child, I thought it would kind of fix that hole inside me that I felt. I felt like I would finally have someone who loved me for me, not what they could get from me. And... Um, that's not a great reason to, to have children trying to fix your brokenness. And of course, at the time, I'm still dealing with um, alcoholism as a coping mechanism. And of course, that just adds to the depression that I'm feeling. And I'm not getting any help for what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as the depression is getting worse and worse, I was 28. I had had my, my last child, my son. And I realized how suicidal I was becoming. I was contemplating and planning out how I could end my life thinking, my God, my kids are going to come home and they're going to be the ones that are going to find me. Right. And that terrified me. And I remember sitting down with my husband and saying, I need to, I need to leave right now. I need to leave the house. I need to try to get myself together because I can't look after myself, let alone three kids. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I think it was fair to say our marriage was basically over anyway. And he was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. If that's what you got to do, see you later. I was leaving the house. He was getting everything. So he was fine with it. So I moved out. I actually moved in with his mother and uh, thought this would be my opportunity to kind of start getting my life together. But really all it did was sent me into an even worse spiral because now I had the guilt of repeating the cycle that just happened to me with you know that my parents did of being abandoned I felt like I abandoned my children and I I allowed mm -hmm. alcohol to you know become a priority over them right. and I had so much guilt that it just set me into a worse spiral and I was drinking even more and I was even more depressed and it was about a month after I left my husband that I jumped into another relationship because again I was mm -hmm. so desperate for someone to love me and I was mm -hmm. seeking my value and validation from anyone who would give it to me. Um, mm. And I found someone who was probably as dysfunctional and toxic as I was at the time. That's why when they say like attracts like, they're usually pretty correct with that. Um, mm. He was an alcoholic. He had just left a, a toxic relationship. 
um, I wasn't aware at the time, but he was a drug addict and um, and he was violent when he drank. So very quickly on in the relationship, I started experiencing domestic violence. And I didn't think it was wrong at the time because it felt like what I deserved. That the guilt I felt over um, leaving my children, it felt like this was karma. I was getting what I deserved for being a bad mom, for being a bad person, for not being <laughs> worthy. And I just kind of went with it. And after two years, there was a really bad episode. And um, I decided I didn't want to go on anymore. And I went to my medicine cabinet and took all the pills that were in there and um, sat down on my couch to write a goodbye letter to my kids, which in hindsight saved my life because um, I didn't want to leave without saying goodbye. But as I was writing sitting there writing that letter with tears streaming down my face, trying to justify to three little kids while I was, while I was leaving in the most ultimate way. Um, mm -hmm. I realized I couldn't do it. And I jumped in a cab, went to the emergency room, um, was sitting at the admissions desk explaining how I just taken all these pills and I think I might be overdosing and I collapsed. And when I woke up, I had tubes down my throat and my partner, who just hours before had abused me, was sitting in a chair beside me crying, saying how sorry he was. Um, I get discharged from the hospital uh, later that day once they ensure that I am safe to be on my own. And I get a phone call from my mom. My partner had called my mom to tell her I was in the hospital. And my mom says, Charlene, I think you need to move across the country, you know, bring the kids. Uh, we'll help you make a fresh start, get on your feet, help you get your life together. And it kind of fit with my pattern of running away from my problems instead of dealing with them. I thought, sure, if I just mm -hmm. move away, everything will be different. Just like when I mm -hmm. left high school and mm -hmm. still not doing any of the work. Mm -hmm. So I was able to take two of my kids at the time, my two daughters. I was able to um, pack them up and move them across the country and make a fresh start with my mom and then six months later my partner that i had left in ontario decided he was moving out he missed me he loved me he wanted to be with me everything was going to be different and of course like a woman that has no self-esteem i sucked right into that story and um he moved out uh, was very shortly after, actually it was before he moved out, um, I had received a call from him. Um, when I left my marriage, my husband had gone down a pretty bad path as well. And he had actually started dealing drugs. And uh, his house actually had gotten raided and he had been arrested and my son had been taken into foster care and i had to go get him that's all i could think of so i jumped on a plane flew back across the country and was able to get custody of my son and brought my son back out as well and then that's after that that my partner moved out and again the promise that things would be different but all that happened was another decade of abuse and dysfunction <laughs> and I was so sucked into the needing him to need me and want me that I was willing to put up with, with almost anything. And it was July of 2015 when he came home one 
afternoon and informed me he was moving out that day, that he was moving in with someone else. And I was completely wrecked. Um, I felt this was another abandonment that I was facing. And the fact that he was moving in with another woman right away, obviously, showed that right. this had been going on, which had been going on in the past. Right. But I thought, okay, now's our opportunity to really get it together. You know, mm -hmm. like we can, mm -hmm. he's moving on with his life. Let's get our, our stuff together here. And so I tried and for two, you know, it was two months. I'm, I'm surrounded by an amazing support group of women who are encouraging me and being my cheerleaders. And I think that I'm, I'm finally starting to get it together. And I remember on a Tuesday, he had uh, texted me and said, Hey, can we get together and talk? And mm -hmm. I was like, no, no, I don't think so. You know, you've moved on with your life. It's, I'm trying to move on with mine. And I know if I see you, I'm going to go right back to square one. And he said, okay, well, I just want you to know, I'm sorry for how things ended. And I said, you know what? Things ended the way they were supposed to end. You know, I wish you nothing but the best. And I left it at that. Two days later, I had a police officer walk into my place of work and he knew where to find me because he had been involved in one of our domestic disputes. And uh, he said, Charlene, I need to see you outside. So I went outside with him and he said, I just came on shift and I saw a notice on the board and I wanted to come talk to you. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, Charlene, I just want you to know that your ex-partner has committed suicide. He shot and killed himself. <sighs> and I am, again, absolutely crushed. Um, my world just got so quiet at the moment. I remember watching cars and people go by and I couldn't hear anything. And I'm thinking, now I have to go home and tell my children that their stepfather, who had raised them for 13 and a half years, good or bad, had taken his own life. And what little sickening hope I had had that maybe I, I would be worthy enough for him to get his life together and he'd want to be with me was now gone. Like this was the ultimate abandonment in my eyes. And I didn't know how I was going to survive. And so I, I, as I always did, put on a brave face and tried to pretend that everything was great. Uh, about two weeks after he had ended his life, I um, was talking to a friend and I told her how angry I was. And she had said, well, it's, you know, it's okay, Charlene, that's one of the stages of grief. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not angry he took his life. Mm -hmm. I'm angry he did it first. Mm. Because seeing what happens after someone does that mm -hmm. the, the pain and the heartache and the chaos that's left behind for the survivors. How do I do that to the people I love right. knowing what, you know, is going to happen. And I so desperately wanted to end my life. I was so tired of hurting. I was so tired of being in pain and not, seeing you know when they say there's a light at the end of the tunnel that tunnel was so long there was no light making its way through and I just felt so lost and alone and I did what I always did I just you know again continued to just keep plugging away you know keep my head down keep working like my grandmother taught me and do it all on my own without asking for help and I received um, a life insurance policy from him his death and I remembered 
you know, thinking, what am I going to do with this money? Having guilt that I even had was getting the money, you know, when I should have been there, you know, they talk about survivor's guilt. It's like, maybe if I would have met with them, maybe I, if I would have taken that phone call, you know, could I have saved his life and, and dealing with that on top of everything else. And, you know, I remember dealing with this thought and then sitting on my bathroom floor one evening as I'm, I'm going through all these thoughts and emotions and I've got, you know, I remember looking down and seeing pills in one hand and a gun cabinet key in the other hand and trying to rationalize which would be the best way to end my life. And, you know, as women, we think about the strangest things at the time, like, well, who would have to clean up after me if I did this? And, you know, my son's going to find me if I do this. And you know, thinking neither option is good and grabbing a knife again and cutting my legs. So reverting right back to the, the coping mechanism that I had as a teenager. And in that moment, as I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the bathroom floor and there's blood surrounding me on the floor thinking, okay, this is like, we're hitting rock bottom. We have to do something. And, you know, the next morning getting up and calling the mental health services in our area and getting in to see a psychiatrist. And um, this is the first time I'd asked for help and thought, okay, this is it for sure. We're gonna get better now. And I remember on my third session with the psychiatrist and my personality is just tell me what to do. And again, this is, I think comes from my grandmother. Just tell me what to do so I can do it and be better. I don't want to talk about the past. I already know. And I remember saying to her, so frustrated on that, my third appointment. Look, mm -hmm. I know why I'm screwed up. I don't yeah. want to keep talking about the past. I know why I am the way I am. I just need you to tell me how to get better. Right. And I remember looking at her going like, just tell me what you did to get better. Like, how did you deal with your mental illness? And having her eyes kind of glaze over and going, well, Charlene, I've never personally dealt with mental illness. Mm -hmm. And it was this moment of, you've sat here for three appointments and told me you understand how I feel. You can't possibly understand how I feel if you've never mm. been there. If you've never mm. sat in the dark, you don't know what it feels like. Like you're, you're reading a book and telling me that, you know, you're going to be okay. I felt like right back to that, you know, all those, you know, people who had told me I was going to be okay. It's like, here you are just another person telling me I'm going to be okay when you don't know that. And I left that appointment and I made a decision that that was it. I couldn't even get help when I wanted it is how I felt. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I was ending my life and I set a date for, you know, 30 days from then to end my life. And I remember as I left the appointment, you know, she's rescheduling another appointment and she's, she's so excited because I had bought a house. I was in the processes of taking possession of a house. And, you know, to her, people who are suicidal don't buy houses. But for me, it was the only legacy I was going to have to leave to my kids that I Your thought kids. had value. Right. Uh, I didn't think I was had been a good mom, so I didn't couldn't leave them that. And all I could do was try to set them up financially. And that was my way. So, you know, I left that appointment with the knowledge that I, I wouldn't see her again. And so about two weeks before the date that I had set to end my life, which was the end of October of 2016, I, um, I had a friend and a coworker come up to me and say, Charlene, there's this workshop going on, a women's workshop. 
Um, and it was two weeks from then. And she's like, it's on a Saturday and a Sunday. She goes, would you like to come with me? And I was like, mm, yeah, no, that was the last thing I wanted to do was go sit in a room with a bunch of people and try to pretend that I was okay, you know, right. two days before I'm ending my life. And she right. said, please, I really want to go, but I don't want to go alone. And I was like, oh man, like that's my kryptonite because I had always put other people's wants and needs and cared more for other people than I did for myself. So here I was mm. looking at her feeling like, mm. okay, she needs me. And I know she needs to go to this workshop. Fine, just go. And I, you know, I remember saying that, okay, fine, we'll go. And so I showed up that Saturday morning of that workshop and, mm -hmm. you know, I pulled in in my parking spot and I remember, you know, kind of looking in the back because in the back seat I had my hunting rifle and I had my stick to use as a lever to pull the trigger. Right. So I could guarantee nothing was going to shift. I was going to make sure one right. and done. And, um, I walked into that room at the workshop and I immediately felt sick to my stomach because I felt like a fraud and it just seemed to be a spotlight on how I'd felt my entire life. I'm looking at a room full of women that look like they have it all together. You know, I'm taking my seat, moving to my table. And they're all talking excitedly. I can hear people setting goals, talking about vision boards. And, and I'm like, really? And here I am just trying to get through two more days so I can end my life. And I thought, what am I doing here? You know, this is so stupid. And the first half of the day goes by and I'm listening to people talk about finances and uh, diet and exercise. And of course, none of this is relevant to me whatsoever at this point. Mm -hmm. And then the afternoon session comes and a woman takes the stage and she is bald. She has alopecia and she starts talking about living her early childhood in her teenage years and as a young woman having zero self-love because she didn't feel she had any worth because of course you know women are hair um and how poorly she treated herself and how you know mental illness had came into her life because she didn't love herself she was looking for mm. validation from the world instead of from inside mm. and how her life had changed the minute that she had started to truly love herself you're now tuned in to Flavor in Your Ear. Flavor in Your Ear.